campfires at Heinz feet burn without measure for five days as messengers arrived with bulletins of successful campaigns. In the camp, however, clansmen reigned in their festivity until the chief, Dolor the Bereft, had spoken. Fifty-one tents surrounded twenty-four, which surrounded a singular tent fashioned out of black felt and dark hides. Sergeants and their inferiors occupied the perimeter quonsets, their immediate commanders and red traces occupied the inner circle, and Dolor occupied the central tabernacle. Any regulars who wished scattered themselves beyond the circles, for without renegade survivors no campaigners required lookouts. As thou hast predicted, Lord Dorlor, the sentries have found stragglers in New Jezrib, all seven, my chief, spoke the oily voice of Clannan, a sanguine trace and lieutenant in the fourth division. They were dispatched upon the site, the lubricous voice continued. Yes, I know, returned a gravelly voice from the innermost room. Yet there were none who carried a sambada, my lord, Clannan finished with his news. The ensuing silence meant it was time to leave the maker of grief. Clannan returned to his tent and the surrounding circle to speak with his confidants. It was unusual, Bafar. He foretold seven renegade killed whose strength was great. We were ready with two squads, though we found them where the chief spoke. We discovered a scrawny band of starving, half-dead kill. So thou hast found them. What is thy difficulty? replied Bafar, a member of the war senate who oversaw war supplies. Clan stared back. His eyes pierced the forehead of Bafar. It was the first time his forecast was in error. Clannan spoke with an upturned smile. He spoke of seven, did he not? demanded the other. He did. Clannan ended the dialogue, understanding Bafar's loyalty had blinded him. Clannan strolled through the inner circle of tents to gather his thoughts and abruptly turned in the direction of the outer encampments. He passed by his sergeants, asleep with full bellies by an empty cookpot. Clannan knew but never asked the makings of their meals. His troops prized Dolor's newest reform, under which they left the youngest kill alive to harvest their livers while cooks prepared the gruesome broth. Though Clannan had started as a regular, he did not appreciate Dolor's improvements. On his way to the French camps, he caught two regulars pilfering under the noses of his sergeants, inattentive tamers who had grown fat. Nonetheless, Clannan bothered neither. A particular cluster of tents interested Clannan, that is, Jeddar Kadil's camp. A small fire burned where Jeddar's club sat and gambled. It was said, do not get in front of Jeddar Kadil. Turning a blind side to Jeddar's treachery was risky for any. Dolor's lieutenant, a voice carried through the night. The men instantly stood and stiffened their backs. The squad fixed their eyes upward, away from Clannan to avoid any beating, the gift for making eye contact with an officer. I'm here to speak to Jeddar Kadil, son of Thai Kadil, Clannan spoke with superiority. I'm Jeddar Kadil, my lord, replied the corporal. Clannan, however, already knew Jeddar by face. About yourselves, ordered Clannan, and the group vacated. Jeddar, of course, remained. Clannan took Jeddar's seat as per custom for officers to show their preeminence. The corporal did not complain, rather he sat down next to Clannan without announcement. Jeddar had learned it was best to face the same direction as his superiors to avoid any intentional glances and thus elude any punishment. Indeed, Jeddar's unique gift was he knew his own arrogance and he avoided his superiors to circumvent his disdain and their payback. Once his contempt towards Dolor's functionaries nearly brought him down. 
During an early campaign in a concealed glen while the main battle raged afar, a second lieutenant gave a particularly irresponsible order to Jeter, to which Jeter answered with invective defiance. Only the officer, Jeter, and another of his group, Sergeant McMalcovy, were present. Before Jeter's scurrility sealed his fate, he slipped his sword between the ribs of the slighted officer the moment the officer turned his back. Jeter later cackled to McMalcovy that the officer's death was his own fault for his carelessness in trusting a double-crossing bastard like himself. Clannon kept silent as they both stared at the fire, and Jeter's nervous uncertainty grew. At any moment, Jeter thought his face would begin to twitch. Clannon was no ordinary lieutenant, but an admittee into the Breath's inner circle, the War Senate. Although Jeter had never personally met Clannon, he knew that Clannon had worked his way up from a low position, much like Jeter's. In addition, Clannon had arrived at his commission through duplicity, not unlike his own. It seems, Jeter, your fates are working stronger tonight for you than ever before. You've been out here with your men how long? What is it, three, four months living like an animal? Clannon smoothly spoke. Jeter did not like the voice at all. Yes, my lord, four months, he lied, for it was under three. You have a loyal group here, something to be proud of. What was your earnings last week? Fifteen kill, my lord, Jeter answered. A fair number only, you must know. My lord, we are not in any advantage here. The villages that have killed are farther away. Jeter had to stop himself, lest it appear he criticized Duller's decision to remain in one location. Clannon, though, did not appear bothered by the near-critical remark. Yes, I pity you in your unfavored circumstances, Clannon answered, feigning empathy. Yet you may be rewarded. Though I cannot grant you a different encampment, I can grant you different quarters. How so, my liege? Jeter perked up. The nervous quality of his voice faded. I am in need of a new officer, a special character, to aid me. As you wish, my lord, Jeter replied. Though Jeter's eyes had remained inverted, he knew from the sound of Clannon's slick voice that his lieutenant looked directly at him. His nervousness reappeared. It is a special breed for which I am looking, Jeter, Clannon returned to his counterfeit empathy, and you have such qualities as others do not. Truly the rumors of Jeter's behavior had drawn Clannon to seek him out. My lord is a man of insight, Jeter complimented Clannon. Jeter, look me in the eyes. Without looking, Jeter clucked, My liege, my sovereign, I am not yet appointed to such post to cast the first glance. I will die unless I am so selected, he added. Clannon knew Jeter was the right choice. He needed such a disingenuous character to succeed in his enterprise. Without Jeter's component, Clannon calculated, he would fail. Yet with Jeter's concerted artifice, he could not fall short. Come with me, for you will be my standard. Unlike other officers, such as a second lieutenant, a standard had only one person to whom to report, his lieutenant. In many divisions, standards were as important as lieutenants in commanding leadership, for they were personally accountable, even to death, for the lieutenant's actions, which is why few lieutenants cared to fill the post, and vice versa. Jeter's ambition could not let him refuse the high rank. Jeter followed Clannon back to the lieutenant's tent for his promotion. Along the way, he pondered the suddenness of his nomination, but with each step towards the inner circle of tents, while his lust for authority swell, his worry contracted.
A party of five snaked their way through the swamps near Enkive on their way to the outer banks of Batom Island, a barren barrier island. Shipwreck boats littered the wind-bitten island's shores, boats which the group hoped to salvage to construct a complete vessel to sail away from the warring clansmen. Though better roads modestly rose out of the marshes, the band preferred the concealed channels and hidden bogs. The vision ended and its dreamer awoke to call for action. Courier scribbled a few words in code on leather pads. Within minutes, three long-distance runners set off to relay information of the escapee's presence in Enkive. Each could run twenty leagues between sunrise and sunset on a straight route. Always they raced each other, for the messenger who reached the designated post first would receive additional pay and food. The youngest who had learned to run at night by half-closing his eyes and tilting his body forward for greater momentum outran the others and passed his pad to three new agents who hurriedly copied his letter onto two additional pads. They too raced each other through the night. Duplicated thus, the secret message quickly reached its target three hours before sunrise. Meanwhile, the escapees, three men and two women, survived another vexing night slogging through the grime and green water. An hour before dawn, the group voted to rest in a thicket of miniature water elms. The branches were so dense they had to twist their bodies to squeeze in between. As four rested, one remained on watch. When light grew, the sole lookout spotted a garrison approach in silence and circle their chosen refuge. None in the squadron had seen the runaways. However, their orders had directed them to their route. A black trace appeared as if from nowhere and ordered a sergeant to light a torch and throw it into the cups. One woman inside the water elms began to cry, which triggered a burst of taunts by the soldiers who as yet had not seen the refugees. The mob grew frenzied, though no one requested surrender. As the lit faggots flew, the ragtag five tried to extinguish the flames. Suffused with moisture from the swamp, the trees did not easily burn. Seeing that their scheme failed, the men launched more flaming debris into the center until the tops of the water elms started to blaze. Against the efforts of both nature and the pitiful victims, the Holocaust eventually consumed the tortured mass of branches, trunks, and flesh. The owner of the vision cackled with morose humor. He woke himself up, crawled out of his comfortable pillowed bed, urinated, and ate a slice of dried fruit. Am I the only master to have such leisure, such uninterrupted peace at this time of carnage, to fully enjoy the spectacle of death? I am, spat Dolor the bereft. Dolor crawled back over the pillows and into his bedchamber to sleep away the remaining hours of morning until his lieutenants came for consultation. When they arrived, he would hear their reports, discuss strategies, and continue the general business of war. In all major fronts, Dollar's black traces, sanguine traces, and regulars were winning every conceivable odd in the war against the realm. Yet there remained a substantial threat in the evacuees who could reunite into a resistance, a parasitic leech on the life of his campaigns. Therefore, Dollar concentrated his efforts on unpopulated areas likely to hold insurgents. Furthermore, searching for the escapees gave him the opportunity to hunt for the prophesied Zambada stone. Where is the one who carries the stone? Dolor mused in bed as he rested his eyes and arched his back. The final campaigns had strained his will and strength, but the two knights in the bone fast approached, and in it his renewal. 
Why not go there? He considered the lark. Previously, his routes to the two knights through the bomb's badlands required cover, but as a conqueror of the realm, he no longer needed safeguards. He would travel the easier route, up the Tisri Trail and through the pass. Pleased with his plan, he fell asleep. As his mind was on Tisri, he appeared there as himself in his dream state. To his right were the trackless sands and desert of the fierce bone. To his left expanded the realm, or what was left of it, in his clansman's grip. The winding pass, though, obscured portions which he wished to see. Thus, the dream master winged himself to a vantage point high above. His eye caught a patch of dark green, and through his dream world he flew there. A field, he exclaimed. A garden was unheard of in the airy plateaus of the Jamdor. In a far corner of the patch, a lonely figure cleared dead vines. Dolor moved closer, yet remained concealed. He remembered stories of crazed vagabonds, members of the old Jerome religious sect who occupied the surroundings before the emergence of John the Dauphin. Their self-imposed isolation had made them mentally imbalanced. Old coot, Dolor hissed and wished to inquire, as the hermit might have useful information. Dolor the bereft fashioned his shape, a short, aging, arthritic priest under the order of Jerome, and walked meekly forward. Ironically, he opened his chaff, his holy book, to the chapter on the presence of evil, and read aloud as he twirled his baton, Jerome's symbol for the circuitous nature of life, from birth to death to birth, and so on. Tran pulled the last squash vines for his compost when the priest's presence startled him. The way of East is hard and lovely, shouted the bent figure shrouded by the cloak of his order. By East, then, you are welcome, replied Tran as he overcame his initial fright. I am journeying, old hermit. Do you have news of this region? Dolor inquired under his false persona. News? Ha! the hermit answered but turned his back. Tran returned to his compost to ponder why someone, anyone, would ask such a queer question. Clearly the man is crazed, Dollar deliberated to himself, but the sound of another approaching startled him. Randall strode out from behind a boulder on his way to assist Tran. His somber mien, precipitated by the loss of his family, remained on his face and his intense gait. Dollar caught sight of the angry figure. John, he gasped at Randall. It's you, he yelled. His voice boomed across the mountainside. Tran turned when, before his eyes, the vision changed from the humble priest to a tall, muscular, and unpleasant portrait of a man with a head larger than it should be. The figure wore battle attire of a chieftain of the Heartborn clan, yet more startling was his copper skin. A Kalassi, exclaimed the hermit. It is Dolor, he shouted to Randall, who froze when the figure called out. Dolor gave one backwards glance at the hermit, signaling the hermit's recognition, and vanished from sight. At the encampment, the warriors heard what they could only describe as thunder, but the lieutenants knew it was Dolor, awake. The den of Dolor's voice calling to the provider was a sign of things gone bad. There would be no meeting today, no prophecies from their chieftain, and no kill to report. Indeed, Dolor the bereft would not leave his tent. The blackened, rotting head of the last soldier that had entered his bivouac on a similar day still rested in the bereft's entrance room. 